So yes, we are looking at everyday spirituality. Um, Jill kicked us off a fortnight ago with worship in our daily lives. Uh, Steve followed it up last week with confession. And now I get to talk about why we sing. Um, I wonder why I got this one. Um, maybe it has something to do with this clip that we're going to look at. This is Michael McIntyre performing at the Grand Theatre in Swansea. Rich. can be extremely hostile, but you're there going hymn number 237, all right? <laughs> all right, we all, all right, let's sing it, let's belt it up to death. <laughs> You've got the New Zealanders, you know, give all the haka, come on! You look a bit hostile, go on, have some bread, it's from heaven, chill out. <laughs> Um, I'm sure you get the gist of it, even though it was slightly stop-start. I wonder if my nationality made me the obvious choice to do this talk. Um, I've heard a lot of people talk on similar ideas as this before, and generally what happens is the preacher starts by saying, isn't it a weird thing that we do? We come together, you know, hundreds of people in a room, and we sing songs together. When does that ever happen? The preacher will always say, well, would you go into your coffee shop? Would you go into the local pub and start singing? This is the only place where people come together and sing. And I always think... We do this all the time. We have entire festivals called Eisteddfod, which are basically people coming together and singing. To be honest, if you ended up in Cardiff after a Welsh rugby match on a Saturday evening, you would genuinely struggle to find somewhere where there wasn't a group of people singing together. Um, sometimes people say, um, isn't it a bit weird because men are normally ostracised because only women really like singing, and by singing in church you ostracise a lot of men. And I always think, yeah, you want to come down to the South West Valleys and talk to a male voice choir and tell them that only women like to sing. Would you fancy speaking to these guys and trying to explain to them that men don't like singing? I think the thing is, it really isn't just a stereotype. We Welsh do really like to sing. So 
I wondered if that was why I was chosen. But the problem is that this causes a bit of an issue because uh, we have a baptism this morning. So I've been told to keep my thing limited to 20 minutes and no more absolute cutoff. And I've wasted the first two minutes of that showing you a video that didn't really work of a comedian that I don't really like all that much anyway. So I should really get on with it. Um, because most of you will know that I am one of the sung worship leaders here. Um, and the guitar that I use every time that I stand up on a Sunday and sing some songs has been with me for 15 years. I have sung worship songs with that in barns that have been converted into churches in rural Romania where they don't even have electricity. I've sung worship songs on street corners in Italy, uh, in the chapel, in the Houses of Parliament and in churches up and down the country. Um, I don't say any of this to try and impress you. I mean, to be honest, you'd be a fairly strange person if you were impressed by that kind of thing. But I just tell it to you to show you that all of those events have had an impact. And all of those events add yet another story to this idea of why we sing. It just gives me another thing to try and fit into this talk. It's like that scene in High Fidelity, which is a book that if you haven't read, you really should read. And it's also a film that if you haven't seen, you probably should go and read the book. But anyway, it's about a guy who runs a record shop. And all throughout the book and the lesser film, uh, he and the guys who work in the record shop spend the entire time doing top fives. Top five, first track on an album, go. Top five songs for a Monday morning. Top five songs about death. Top five songs about this. Top five songs about that. And then at the end of the story, he gets asked by a journalist, what are your top five songs of all time? And he freezes because he just can't fit it all in. And he goes away and then he gets in touch with the journalist the day after and he's made her a 90-minute compilation tape, which dates the book a bit, a bit I guess. Um, and I kind of feel like that this morning. I kind of feel like there are so many ideas that what I really want to do is to give you the 90-minute compilation tape, but you'll be glad to know, particularly Emma, who's going to get baptized in a bit, that I really don't have time for the 90-minute compilation tape. Um, actually, I don't even have time for a top five, but this morning, in the next 15 minutes, and absolutely no more, here are reasons why we sing my top three. Um, the first up is a song called And Can It Be?, um, Rich, can you play the clip, please? Thanks, Rich. That should be enough. Um, when I lived in Swansea, some of you will know that I used to help out at the local prison. Um, I used to go and sing some songs and preach every now and again uh, on a Sunday morning in the services they had there. And after a while of going into what was the third service of the morning, I got asked if I'd come in and, and do a whole morning, um, sing some songs in the three services that they have. Um, and when I went in, I found out that there was an old lady who played the organ. She was about, I don't know, 140, 150 years old, maybe. Uh, and she sang, or she played the first and last hymn uh, in the first service every single week. Um, and I didn't know her. I went in, you know, all excited with my guitar on my back and got my guitar out. And she stopped me and she said, I am playing the first and last hymn. And you will not join in with me for those hymns because any more than one musician playing a song does not constitute worship, it constitutes a performance. 
literally the first word she said to me. Um, I don't know how she would have coped with Psalm 92 that Gareth read about the ten-stringed lyre and the harp. I assume that she thought they were singing on different songs. Um, the, I was taken aback a bit and backed down. Um, she then told me that the first song we were going to sing, or that she was going to sing, was And Can It Be, which, as some of you will know, has six rather long verses. I suggested that maybe we drop a few of these verses. We had 40 minutes with these prisoners, and to be honest, most of them were there just to get out of their cells for a bit. And, you know, six very old-world um, verses probably wasn't the best way we could use that time. Again, the response was not positive. You will not leave out any of the verses in these songs because the people who have written these songs have been divinely inspired. These lyrics are inspired by God and to leave out any verses would be akin to taking parts of the Bible out and throwing them away. Again, I back down. Let her get on with it. Um, however, a few weeks later, my mate Jez was in the prison, and he also asked, was asked to do a, a first service of the day. Um, and actually, after that, I met Jez for lunch. I said, hey, how was the prison? And he said, have you ever met the old lady who sings the hymns in the first service? And I said, yeah, why? He said, well, because I turned up, and I got my guitar out, and, and she just came over and told me that, you know, more than one musician constituted a performance and therefore I wasn't going to be able to play. And, and then the first song she picked was And Can It Be? And it's got six verses and I suggested that we cut a few out. And et cetera, et cetera. The thing is, though, Jez is a bit more argumentative than me. So when Lino, the prison chaplain, stood up and announced that the first song was going to be And Can It Be? The lady got up and walked to the organ. Jez just got up and walked over to his guitar and picked it up and carried on playing. What was she going to do? <laughs> is what he said. And then, halfway through the first verse, he thought, well, in for a penny, in for a pound. Got to the end of the second verse, and he shouted, last verse, everybody! <laughs> and everybody just sang the last verse. Now, like Jez and this old lady, we all approach this idea of sung worship in different ways, don't we? Some of, it, some of us will view it as hugely important. For some of us, it will be the reason that we choose the church that we've chosen. And for others, we hate it. Some of us will deliberately turn up late, not just late because we can't get out of bed, but late because we know that if we rock up at about half eleven, we've probably missed the majority of the singing and we can just get the rest of the service. Um, if that is you, I can only apologize that having tried to turn up late and avoid the singing, you now walk into a talk all about singing. Um, but I think it's okay that we're honest about this. I think it's important that we're honest about all this kind of stuff. It's totally fine to have different viewpoints on corporate singing. And as a community together, I think we need to make space for that. We need to make space so that if you are one of those people who instead of singing wants to look at the words of the song and sit in silence, maybe reflecting on them or praying, that that's okay, that we create a space for you, that you feel that you're in a safe place to do that. But equally, if you're the kind of person who always makes sure that they're here at 11 so they don't miss the first song because you love to sing, that is one of the ways that you connect with God, then I think we need to make a space for you as well. If you want to lift your hands, if you want to close your eyes, if you want to cry, if you want to dance, if you want to do anything else, we need to make this a safe place for you as well. Because in my experience, I think this is something that churches with more progressive theology often don't do all that well. That in throwing out the conservative theology of our youth, sometimes we also try to leave behind a lot of 
other parts of the service as well, that we leave behind that way that we worship God, which hinders the worship of those who still do find the connection with God in that way. So if you are that person who would like to be a bit more expressive in worship, if you find that this place doesn't suit that, I really hope that you'll take these words and really find this a safe place in which to do so. Because there's power, I think, in all of those different people with different approaches coming together to worship God in their own way. We talk a lot about inclusion in this church, and I'd love you, whoever you are, to feel that you have permission to worship God in whatever way you want. Whoever you are, hopefully we can agree on one thing, that regardless of whether we enjoy singing our praises to God, it's important, it's part of our everyday spirituality that we spend some time consciously praising and worshipping God. So as we go through a couple of reasons why it's important, whether you love singing or whether you hate it, whether you are a singer or just a drummer, um, hopefully there'll be something in this for all of us. We're going to stick with this idea of truthfulness, of honesty in our worship just for a bit longer. And here's another song. This is When the Tears Fall. Thanks, Rich. flip back to the laptop please. I think when people think about singing in the Bible, uh, as Steve's already mentioned this morning and as one of the songs we've already sung mentioned, um, their first thought is usually to turn to the book of Psalms, which is in essence a collection of poems, many of which would have been set to music. Um, even the word Psalms comes from psalterion, which was an ancient stringed instrument which looked like this. Uh, if the book was written now, we might call it guitaros, uh, or maybe even Telecasteros. Um, now, there are 150 psalms, and if you were to try and categorize them, what you'd find is that one of the dominant categories would be that of lament, songs which are written by individuals crying out to God for help. There are, you know, loads of psalms of praise as well, like the one that Gareth read to us earlier, but of the 150 psalms, depending on which theologian you believe, it's said that between 67 and 69 of the psalms are about lament. But why is this important? I think it's because when we look at why we sing, we also have to consider what we sing. There are some songs like this bit in You Never Let Go, which we sometimes sing, that says, I can see a light that is coming for the heart that holds on, and there will be an end to these troubles, but until that day comes, still I will praise you, still I will praise you. Songs like that one promise us a better day, don't they? But sometimes we're just not there yet. Sometimes we don't need someone to give us the hope of the better day. Sometimes we just need to deal with the pain first. Anyone who's done any study of psychology would be aware of Kubler-Ross's five stages of grief, where acceptance is the fifth stage. There are four stages before that. It's important to come to terms with things before we try and move on. 
And that's one of the reasons why songs of lament are so important. They give us time to grieve, time to process hurt. How many times have you turned up to church feeling rubbish and the first song has been something like, how great is our God or um, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases that we had today. And, and don't get me wrong, these songs are great and I think it is important to start a service by making a statement about praise and about praising God. But sometimes a few of us will come and we will feel like we don't really want to sing those songs and we can't sing those songs. It's about this point again of truthfulness and honesty in our worship, truthfulness and honesty in our relationship with God. When we turn up to church feeling rubbish, we need some songs that are able to articulate that, and I don't think we have enough of them. I find this song, the Tim Hughes one, interesting from that point of view. Um, Tim Hughes wrote it and he gave an interview just after he released the album which contains this song, and in that he says this, he says, one aspect of worship that I've explored in this album is the theme of worship in lament. I've been thinking a lot about how many of the songs we sing in church are about how good God is, how faithful God is, how wonderful it is to know God. But when you read through the Psalms, there are hundreds of references to life being hard and full of pain. There are questions like, God, where are you? I try to express some songs that look at that aspect of worship that say, God, you are good, but from a place that is hard where there is pain. I think this is a really admirable statement, and it's one that I'd like to see more of, but here's the thing. Here's the first couple of lines of that song again. I've had questions without answers. I've known sorrow, I have known pain. Let's compare it to the first four verses of Psalm 13, which is one of David's songs of lament. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. Or my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. Anyone spot the difference? Tim Hughes' song is in the past tense. He isn't writing out of a place of struggle. He's writing from a place of having struggled and having got through that struggle. I've had questions, I've known sorrow, I've known pain. David in Psalm 13 is right in the middle of it when he writes, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? a theologian, Walter Brueggemann, who talks about the costly loss of lament. I think it's a topic that's vital to our sang worship. If we're going to continue to worship with this truthful and honesty, there have to be more songs of lament for us. There has to be the opportunity for us to come to church on a Sunday morning, some of us, and say, do you know what, I've had a pretty terrible week. Maybe even use language stronger than that, as we talked about this morning. I've had a pretty terrible week. And God I don't want to sing songs of praise this morning. I want to want to sing songs of praise, but that's about as close as I can get today. Why do we sing? To express our true, honest feelings to God. Even if, especially if, those are cries to God for help. And we need more songs, I think, that will help us to do that. One more song before we end. 
On June the 17th, a group of people were holding a prayer meeting in the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina, USA, when a man called Dylan Roof ran into the building and started shooting. Clement Pinckney, the church's senior pastor, Cynthia Hurd, Susie Jackson, Ethel Lance, the Payne Middleton doctor, Tywanza Sanders, Daniel L. Simmons Sr., Sharona Coleman Singleton, and Myra Thompson were murdered. On June the 26th, Barack Obama gave the eulogy at the funeral of Clementa Pinckney. This is how he ended it. Rich. Amazing grace. Amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Clementa Picnic found that grace. Cynthia Hurd found that grace. Susie Jackson found that grace. Ethel Lance found that grace. The Payne Middleton Doctor found that grace. Iwanza Sanders found that grace. Daniel L. Simmons Sr. found that grace. Sharonda Coleman Singleton found that grace. Myra Thompson found that grace. Through the example of their lives, they've now passed it on to us. May we find ourselves worthy of that precious and extraordinary gift. As long as our lives endure, may grace now lead them home. May God continue to shed his grace on the United States of America. I don't know about you, but when I first saw that, I found it quite powerful. Um, that was at the end of a really long eulogy. And just for the last couple of minutes of that eulogy, Barack Obama, for me, he's no longer the president of the United States of America. He's a worship leader. He's a preacher. He's a pretty vulnerable sounding worship leader and preacher at that, I think. And he brings everyone with him. Until that point, he's been standing and they've all been sitting and up they come and they join with him. Until that point, he's been talking and they've been listening, and now they're joining in with him. Everyone's welcome to join in. Everyone sings along. Scholars call it collective intentionality 
It says, the power of minds to be jointly directed at objects, states of affairs, goals, or values, which, you know, sounds a bit like what we try to do on a Sunday morning. Some of us, hopefully most of us, will have some kind of experience of the collective intentionality of singing songs to God. I remember being 15 years old in a living room in a house in a village in northwest Romania that had an old out-of-tune piano in the middle, and my sister getting up and sitting down at this piano and starting to play some old hymns. And there were 30 of us hammered into this, rammed into this tiny little living room, 15 or so from Wales, 15 or so from Romania, hardly a shared language between any of us. And my sister starts playing these old songs, and we start singing in English, and they start singing in Romanian. And in that moment that moment of people who are joined by a love of God and separated by language and no longer separated by language. There's a collective intentionality there. I hope you can think of similar experiences, but I'm aware that this might sound alien to you. I'm aware that maybe you might be one of those people that I mentioned at the beginning who turns up late every week to avoid half the songs. And if what you're taking from what I'm saying is that sang worship is important and you're in some way missing out, then please don't misunderstand me. Um, People often talk about two angles to worship. There's the vertical relationship where we talk about the relationship between you and God and you singing songs to God, but there's also the horizontal. You're boosting of others or being boosted by others through your and their worship of God together. And I think this is hugely important. If I'm in that situation where I can't bring myself to sing these songs this morning, I can take strength from seeing someone that I know, another part of this community, another part of my community, belting out these songs when I know that a few months ago they were in the position that I was in. Because, as I said at the beginning, to close, we're a worshipping community. We're in this together, whether we can hold a tune or not. As worship leaders, we have to try to create a space to remind ourselves and everybody else in the congregation that the world does not revolve around me, that we are all here for a bigger purpose. Because whether we can sing, whether we do sing, whether we want to sing or what we sing isn't important. What's important is why we sing. Why do we sing? To worship a God who's bigger than all of this. To worship a God who's the same whether we love to sing or whether we hate it. To remind ourselves and each other that there's more than this, there's more than us. And maybe, in Barack Obama's words, we sing to find that grace.